0: listening to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode. She is an author and a crime victim advocate. Her name is Tamara Cherry, and we will be discussing human trafficking. tomorrow and welcome to the show thank you for joining me for this episode of 247 real talk
1: thanks for having me
0: it's a quite a pleasure it's quite a pleasure so as is the style on 247 real talk we jump right into the conversation and um a few episodes ago i had someone on that spoke about human trafficking and uh, i know that you have done quite a bit of uh delving into the situation into the crime and into this uh Plague of our society that still needs uh, advocates and still needs to be brought to public attention. So, why don't you start her off by telling us um, you know, how you got into this, and you know, we'll go from there.
1: Sure. So, in my former life, up until about a year ago, I was a crime reporter in Toronto, Canada. Um, I worked as a crime reporter for almost fifteen years in newspapers and in television. And I was working at the Toronto Sun newspaper, which would basically be um, the Canadian equivalent of the New York Post. Um, On a Saturday, a news release came over in the cop desk about a human trafficking arrest in Toronto. And when I saw that headline, I just I I sort of paused for a second because I saw human trafficking and I was thinking, well, this doesn't happen in Canada. I was really naive to the problem back then. And as it so happened, um, a couple of months earlier, I'd watched a movie called Trade. Now, this, you you may or may not have seen it, members of your audience may or may not have seen it, but it's a movie about the trafficking of sex slaves into, into the United States from Mexico and Eastern Europe. Now, in the movie, it's implied that the young Eastern European woman had been lured to Mexico under the guise of working as a model in Los Angeles, and at the end of the movie, Uh, there were some words that appeared on the screen about how the CIA estimates that between 50 and 100,000 girls, boys and women are trafficked annually into the United States to be pimped out or sold for forced sex. So I remember watching that movie and thinking like, wow, I can't believe this happens in the United States. It would never happen in Canada. And then fast forward a couple of months, uh, January 2008, I'm working at the Toronto Sun. And sure enough, a news release comes over and the allegations are that, A woman, uh, it might have been two women at that point, actually, I don't remember, um, had come from an Eastern European country to Canada thinking that they were going to work as models and they were allegedly forced into the sex trade. So I dove right into that. I couldn't believe it was happening there. That day, my photographer and I were knocking on the door of one of the alleged traffickers' uh, apartments, interviewing one of their wives. And I did story after story after story about international human trafficking, what it looks like, you know, who are the victims, how do they fall victim to this? And amidst all these stories, a couple of weeks after that first story, I got an email in my inbox from the head of the vice squad for a police service called Peel Regional Police, which operates just west of Toronto. And the head of the vice squad, a guy but at the time he was detective, Randy Cowan, had basically said in this email, look, I think it's great that you're doing these stories about human trafficking, international cases, but how about you come out here and look at all the cases we have before the courts? So I went out to their office and they had about a half a dozen cases before the courts at that time. And not one of them involved, you know, somebody who came in a boxcar from China or somebody that answered an ad from an Eastern European country, every single one of them involved a young Canadian woman or girl who was being forced into the sex trade by a young Canadian man. So shortly after they showed, they kind of walked me through their cases and they, they gave me the rundown, they introduced me to this young woman who would come to be known as Eve in many of the stories that I would write about her of course, protecting her identity. And this was a young woman who for two and a half years as a teenager was forced into the sex trade. She was a young Canadian girl who was essentially being used as a sex slave in the greater Toronto area. And she was one of so many. It opened my eyes to this world. And it honestly, it had a profound impact on my life. I, I did countless stories on domestic sex trafficking. And I'm talking about Canada here, but it's the same thing that happens in the United States. I, I covered these stories for more than a decade. And it really, I'd say it shaped a big part of the person I am today, but it also formed a huge part of my career.
0: Wow. Wow. So it you seem that, when, or from what I'm gathering is, you know, when you first heard of it, you kind of you know, taken back the same way I was when my first guest came on and started giving the statistics um, from within the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And some of the things she pointed out were like, we, ha- we still have states within the United States that, you know, child marriage is still legal. Mm-hmm. And... um but your perspective is a little different because a lot of the trafficking that she spoke about um, was from within the United States. Your your what you are seeing in Canada is actual people. You know that's the kind of um, something that resembles the movie Taken. One of these things where someone travels to another country, um, you know, either for a vacation or you know, pursuing a job or something on the false pretenses. Well,
1: that, that's how I started my journey into the human trafficking world was on those international cases. But what I very quickly realized that when we're talking about human trafficking in Canada, just as when you're talking about it in the United States, a, a, a big portion of that, those cases involve domestic sex trafficking cases. So the girls and women that I was reporting on by and large in Canada were Canadian girls are being trafficked by Canadian men. Just as in the United States, by and large, it's it's American girls and women who are being trafficked by American men. Now, if you'll bear with me for a second, I want to read you a quote. And this is from a book that's one of my favorite books about human trafficking. And I'll tell you why in a second. I don't want to give it away until after I read it to you. It's kind of long, but I think it's going to sort of hammer home the point of how crazy it is that this is still happening. So here's the quote. It said, Every policeman and every judge of the police court knew the true conditions and no one thought of denying them. Although frequently the poor girls would be kept at their trade by slaps and blows and threats of death, the authorities would contend that they were, quote, willing slaves and that they therefore deserved no consideration or sympathy. But when we began to get closer to the hearts of the girls to know their true history, we discovered that the commencement of this form of slavery had been even in a baser form, that before the girls had become so-called willing slaves, they were unwilling slaves. Many of them had fought for their liberty and had submitted only because they had become overcome by superior force. Some of them had been drugged. Others kept under lock and key until such a time when either their better nature had been drugged into unconsciousness or hardened into a devil make care, make care recklessness. Some had their their clothes taken from them. Others had been cajoled into quietness by promise of great rewards or by intimidation with which this young woman or with which this young and inexperienced class is one of the most potent methods. Now, when I read that in this book, this is a book, called The History of the Sex Trade that I downloaded on Amazon many, many years ago when I was sort of in the midst of reporting on human trafficking. And I was reading it and nodding along. um, And I didn't know a lot about this book. I think I just searched like human trafficking or sex trade and Amazon. And I found this one. Um, I was nodding along like, yep, yep, that's right. And then I noticed that this book was published in 1910. So the stuff that's going on today with human trafficking, with these these apparently willing slaves that are actually unwilling slaves. The same stuff, the same methods were being used more than 100 years ago. And this book is talking about the United States, but the same stuff is happening in Canada. And like you said, Julian, you were shocked to hear about the stuff that's happening in the United States. I was shocked to hear about the stuff that was happening in the US and in Canada. But this stuff has been going on for a long time. And so I felt the need through my reporting as a journalist, through the book I recently published, to really contribute to this education piece because we still incredibly have such a long way to go to stop this problem and to, to educate the masses, really.
0: Yeah, so I agree with you 100%. But tell me something, in your research, and it seems like you've really um, intimately delved into this issue and that I like because... Uh, the more people we can get to speak about this in a in an expert manner, the more people will start to listen and start to look for the signs and all these things that are ignored so many times because um, I've heard many times that these victims are sometimes, you know, when once they're pushed into that place of obedience, they're brought out in the public like anyone else. And if you don't know the signs, they just seem like the next person walking down the street next to you. But um, in terms of your stories that you've researched and heard, tell me about a few of them of, uh, that you've heard of, how these people you know, were, were, were brought into the human trafficking. You know, what, what, How did it happen, the journey, the, how they first sure. met the person and how they ended up?
1: So a lot of the cases I ended up reporting on, definitely not all of them, but a lot of them involved uh, runaway girls. So um, they were running away from home for whatever reason. Some of them uh, suffered abuse at home. Others uh, suffered from mental health issues. Um, I can tell you that a lot of these traffickers will look for girls who are vulnerable in some way. So I think about one young woman that I reported on many years ago. Her name, I I identified her as Tina. Um, She was basically couch surfing, going from place to place. And oftentimes men would tell her, okay, you can stay at my place if you do this for me, perform some sort of sexual act. And then on and on it goes until she eventually meets a pimp-turned-trafficker who who says, I will enter into this business relationship with you um, where you give me a portion of your proceeds, but really it then turns into you give me all of your money and you're now working for me. So it goes from what seems to be Um, you know, a business relationship to a completely one-sided transaction where she is being forced to, you know, have sex with 10 or 15 men a day and leave all the money on the table for her trafficker to come and collect every morning. So that was Tina. And then I was talking to you about Eve earlier. Eve is somebody who, um, she she suffered abuse at home. um, And then she met her trafficker after running away from home at one point her first trafficker, when she was uh, 14 years old. And he was a very violent man who uh, basically used threats and violence to control her and to force her to have sex with other men for money and hand over all the money to him. When she finally left him, um, another trafficker found her because these guys have really good radars for vulnerable young girls and women. And this guy uh, ended up trafficking her for several months. And the thing about these guys is a lot of the times, I mean, they're looking for what the void is that needs to be filled for these girls and women. And sometimes, as I mentioned, it's shelter. It's a place to stay. Sometimes it's clothes. A lot of times it's love. So if they see that these girls are looking for a boyfriend, somebody to protect them, somebody to love them, they, they feed them all the right lines. They they know exactly what to say. There's actually pimping books that have been written, manuals. I've seen them, uh, that these guys can go and read. And and they know exactly what to say to these girls and women. They know exactly what rules to implement um, until they have them to a point of submission that they don't really have much choice but to stay with them because they these, these girls have either been told well, who will have you now? You're just, uh, and don't mind my language, but this is what they tell them. You're just a whore. You're nothing but a hoe. Nobody's going to want a hoe for a wife. Um, You know, if you go, if you go to the police, you're just going to get in trouble. If you go back to your family, I'm going to tell them what you did. I've got these compromising photos of you and on and on and on. So with Eve, she was with her second trafficker who would end up being the first man in Canadian history to be convicted of human trafficking, she was with him uh, for several months. And when she decided she finally wanted to leave, uh, he told her, okay, if you want to leave, you need to pay me an exit fee of $100,000. So despite the fact that she already had made tens of thousands of dollars for him, again, having sex with men, 10, 10 to 15 men a day, through her menstrual cycle, through yeast infections, 24/7. He then told her, "If you want to leave, you have to make me another hundred thousand dollars." So she started keeping a ledger of all of her clients um, until one day she finally just escaped, and that ledger ended up being a big piece of evidence to put this guy behind bars. So that was Eve. There was another young woman that I reported on uh, named Roxanne. That's what I referred to her as anyway, and she was somebody who was from another city um, and and was trafficked into the Toronto area, again, by somebody who she believed to be her boyfriend. And he told her, basically, uh, you know, if you love me, then you'll just walk around in a sexy outfit at the strip club. That's all you have to do is walk around in a sexy outfit. And then it turned into, you got to walk around naked. And then it turned into, well, if we're really going to make the money, you have to do the extras in the VIP room. And when I asked her, well, what are the extras? Well, it's full-blown intercourse in the VIP room of these strip clubs. And again, every penny was going to her pimp slash trafficker. So, so many stories like this I've been told. Again, a lot of the times it involves young women who think that they're in a loving relationship. And then they kind of get cajoled into the sex trade. And then they get so deep into it that they can't leave because then they're either being kept there by threats, violence, manipulation, lies, you name it.
0: Wow. Okay. So... A couple of things came to mind um, based on what you just said. First, I, I I kind of thought in my mind, the one Eve who kept the ledger. Was there any action taken against the clients? That's my first part. And my I, I also was, I wanted to know if anyone reco- who was recounting their story to you um, mentioned being because I'm assuming these traffickers. Give them at least a roof over their head to make sure that they're they're kept in house, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. Did they ever mention you know finding that individuality lost in the fact that wherever they were kept, there were multiple others like them.
1: Mm. Well, there's there's definitely a sense of their identity be taken being taken away from them. I can say that for certainty. And and just like in the most basic sense a lot of these traffickers will take away their pieces of identification. So they don't have their health cards, they don't have their driver's license if they have one, or their passports if they have one. Everything is sort of stripped away from them so that um, they don't have as much control to leave if they want to. Um, And their possessions are very few. You know, they're moving from place to place. There's not a lot of stuff that they can take with them. In terms of their individuality and having other people around, Sometimes they were kept with other girls or women, and sometimes they were kept by themselves. I know that in this world, there can be a sense of sort of competition between the girls or women because the traffickers don't want them to be friends necessarily because the traffickers want to be number one in the the eyes of these girls and women. And not only that, but they'll often end up using their victims to find more victims. So they'll use them to recruit other girls and women. I know I might be getting a little bit off topic from what your your second question was there. And what was your first question?
0: My first question was actually I, I liked where you were going with that. So you know do do finish that thought. But the other question was, in the case of Eve, where they were able to bring that human trafficker to prosecution. Right. She had a ledger with clients, and if there was any action taken against the clients.
1: Right, 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 right. So I don't think that the clients were named in that ledger. But you raise a really good point about. Oh, sorry, my cell phone cord just fell on the ground. Um, You raise a really good point, though, about the johns involved. So when it comes to these human trafficking cases, in my experience, the police are generally going after the traffickers if they can get to the traffickers. In order to get these johns, um, in in particular when the girls are underage, under the age of 18, they need to be able to prove that the clients knew that the girls were under the age of 18. So, rather than going after the Johns when they're when they're trying to prosecute a trafficker, they'll often do separate stings to catch the Johns. So, I have seen undercover operations, uh, in particular, done by York Regional Police north of Toronto, uh, whereby an officer working undercover will go online, post an ad, uh, posing as a sex worker, and will start communicating with potential clients, saying, "Oh, I hope it's okay. I'm not actually 18." I'm only 15 years old or I'm actually only 14 years old. And when the client says, Oh yeah, that's totally fine, and then shows up to presumably have sex with this 14 or 15 year old girl, he's then confronted by police and slapped and slapped with police bracelets and and on and on it goes. So I've done a lot of stories about those, but I haven't seen a lot of cases where the trafficker is arrested and a bunch of Johns are brought in at the same time. As far as police are concerned here anyway, when they're going after the traffickers, like they're going after the traffickers. When they're going after the Johns, they're going after the Johns. But it's not very often that we see those those investigations kind of coming together.
0: Okay. All right. So, well, um, <clears throat> I only asked that, too, because what crossed my mind is the person, um, the John is, I'm assuming, at least guilty of... Um, prostitution, which or soliciting prostitution, which I assume is illegal. Um, I don't know the laws in Canada, but I'm assuming that that's... Is that illegal?
1: So the laws have changed in recent years. Right now, basically, the priority for police is to go after the the pimps and the traffickers and anybody that might be purchasing uh, sex from a minor. So you won't see police up here doing stings, on johns who are, you know, trying to solicit sex from a 20-year-old sex worker, for example. They're going to go after the guys that are looking for the 13-year-old girls, the 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old girls. That's where you're going to see criminal charges laid in Canada. Uh, But it's interesting because when I first started reporting on human trafficking uh, back in 2008, there were still some police services in Canada that were charging the, the women for being what the charge in our criminal code was being an inmate of a common body house, for example. So they were charging the women and not charging the men who were profiting from these women. And gradually over the years, as you know, I reported more and more on it and it just sort of came more into the spotlight, a lot of police services started changing their tactics, started started changing their tactics, started recognizing that many of these girls and women are in fact victims. Um, and started treating them that way, and and looking at who who their abusers were, who th- who their victimizers were, and and prosecuting those people instead.
0: Okay, so all right, so another thing that comes to mind when I recall the original conversation I had with this on my previous av- uh, episode, part of what I learned about within the United States is, um, in many cases, also the trafficker is, you know, in our, in our cases, that expert found that sometimes it was a father, a brother, a longtime boyfriend. What, what did you uh, uncover? Or did you uncover anything that was similar to that?
1: Boyfriend is the, the, the common theme that came up over and over and over again in the cases that I was looking at here. When you're looking at domestic sex trafficking cases, By and large, uh, they usually start out as a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, and they sort of spiral into the world of sex trafficking. Whereas, you know, the girl is told by her boyfriend, I love you, you know, you love me, let's build our life together oh, you know, uh, this job I was supposed to get fell through. We just need to make a little bit of money to get that condo. I know somebody that can get you a job at this club. All you have to do is walk around in a sexy outfit, like I told you with that one young woman. Um, And then that moves into one thing and then another. and And then suddenly they're working out of a motel room or a condo, you know, selling their bodies to 10 or 15 strangers a day. So that is one way that it happens. Another way that I've heard about it happening is, uh, a young woman will be taken and uh, gang raped and basically beaten down to a point that she's sort of broken into the sex trade and and instilled with this real fear um, and basically told, you know, like, you work for us now. You work for me now. you I own you. And this is the way it's going to be. So there's various ways it happens, but by and large, the cases that I've looked at have involved... Uh, what appear to be boyfriend-girlfriend relationships.
0: Okay. And what's the youngest you've seen?
1: Uh, 14 for cases that I've reported on personally. Um, But I have heard uh, secondhand about cases, oh gosh, involving a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. I'm sure even younger than that, but I don't, I don't want to get specific because I'm thinking about actual cases I've reported on the actual cases that I've like had firsthand knowledge of, where I've actually seen a picture of, of a girl that was being sold on Craigslist. That was where they were being sold back then was a 14 year old girl. And I can tell you when I looked at that picture of her on Craigslist, you couldn't see her face, but police had already found her by the time they showed me this picture, her body looked like a 14 year old girl's body. It was a scrawny, Little body, anybody looking at that picture, any Johns looking to buy sex would have known that this was not the body of an 18-year-old woman, that they were purchasing sex for with a child, um, and many of them had before police found her. Wrapped up, answering the door to her motel room in nothing but a towel, thinking that she was answering the door to a John uh, and ready to go. And this is a 14-year-old girl. And, and, and then might I add, too, actually, in that case... Um, She was found by police and then she ended up going missing again. And I, I, at some point met her father. Her father actually called into the Toronto Sun newsroom hoping to talk with me because he was desperately trying to find his daughter. He had search teams out going from motel to motel, shopping mall to shopping mall. He was so afraid she was going to fall into the hands of another trafficker and, She did. And, you know, basically all of her teenage years were taken from her. I recently heard, we're we're going back a decade now, and as it so happened, I recently heard from her stepmother uh, just two or three months ago. She was reaching out to ask me about a story I'd written a really long time ago, and she updated me on this girl who's now a woman, uh, and she's married. She's got four kids, but she, from what I understand from the stepmother, she still carries a lot of the trauma that she experienced in her teenage years.
0: Yes, I would. I would expect that to be the case. Um, have you been able to speak? I know you, said you, you, uh, you spoke to the father who called in, but other than that, those parents that you referenced, have you been able to speak with other um, parents looking for their children? And what was that like? Mm-hmm. If you, yeah,
1: I did a lot of stories, uh, in particular when I was working at the Toronto Sun. Um, I had parents contacting me fairly regularly saying that they were afraid that their daughters were being trafficked, that they couldn't find them. I remember doing one story about a teenage girl who was missing from her home in Kitchener, which is uh, a couple hours outside of Toronto, and her mother believed that she was being pimped out in Toronto. And I actually I don't recall what the follow up was on that if, when if or when her daughter was found, but I remember a lot of conversations with desperate parents desperately looking, looking for their kids. And actually, I can tell you, um, there's one woman that recently connected with me on Facebook who's also from Ontario, and she has been looking for her daughter for a long time, and she believes that her daughter is being controlled by a trafficker. She has. You know, gone to police. she's she's doing all these things to try to get control of her daughter again, but she hasn't been able to do so. So this is I mean, as a parent, because I was not a parent when I started reporting on these cases. Now I have three kids. And as a parent, I cannot imagine the anguish of not only having a missing child but knowing that they might be subjected to sexual assault, physical assault, um Threats, you know, just rape it's just it's 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 horrific what these girls and women go through and and for these parents that are looking for them, like you know my heart goes out to them because these aren't these aren't all girls who come from totally broken homes, nobody loves them, and certainly those exist, and those cases are perhaps even more tragic, but a lot of these girls have people that are looking for them, like when I think about Eve, who was trafficked for two and a half years. Um, She was a runaway, but there were people looking for her. I later found news stories about, you know, police had appealed for information about her. Her grandparents were looking for her. You know, they spoke to the media one year about, you know, celebrating a holiday without her and the despair that that brought them. But it's really hard to find somebody when they're stuck in that world, even if they're just, you know, a half an hour, 45 minute drive away, as was with the case for much of the time that Eve was being trafficked. Um, it, it's not easy to find them when they are pushed underground like that. And, uh, and, and then when they return home, they're often not the same people that they were when they left. So like, like I said, like they, there's so much trauma that is endured by these, these girls and women, they carry the scars with them. They wear these scars for years and years. Uh, Eve is somebody that I keep in touch with still from time to time. It's been more than a decade since we first met and she is still suffering from the, the way that she was victimized back in, you know, 2006, 2007. It, it's, it's horrific how it's, how it's altered her life.
0: Yeah. I can imagine as a parent myself, I can't, even begin to think about and don't want to think about what that would be like. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of the questions I also asked my previous guest was when we have this conversation about human trafficking, obviously it's, it's predominantly female, but have you, or did you encounter this, any such instances with male children?
1: I did not. I know that it exists, but all the cases that I reported on involved young women and girls being trafficked by young men. That's not to say that there aren't boys that are, that are trafficked or men that are trafficked or transgenders that are trafficked. It, it is definitely happening, but my area of expertise when I was reporting on this and the focus of my book was young women and girls who are being trafficked by young men. I think that when you, when you get into boys, uh, the transgender community, um, I don't know a lot about it, but from what I understand, you know, there's a lot of similar themes. But I imagine there is unique aspects to uh, both of those populations and and how they're victimized. I'm just not an expert in it.
0: Okay, I can understand that. Just wanted some insight in in terms of uh, Canada as opposed to the United States. So, since you've done all this work, and it sounds like you've done an amazing job at pushing awareness and um, advocacy for or against this this vile trade what have there been any um, emerging um, resources that have been established to help the you know the, the those being trafficked who are seeking help to get out of you know, the trade
1: So definitely a lot has changed over the last twelve years since I started reporting on this. When I started reporting on this stuff back in 2008, there was virtually no support services for survivors who got out of the sex trade, to the survivors who got out of uh, sexual slavery, I should say, um, to the point that police officers who were, you know, helping prosecute these cases also were acting as the victim support workers. So a lot of these 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 girls and women, for example, they had their traffickers' names tattooed on their skin. It's very common for traffickers to to quote-unquote brand their their products, for lack of a better word. Um, So these police officers would team up with uh, local tattoo parlors to get pro bono work done where they could get the the traffickers' names uh, covered up with a different tattoo to, to try to sort of erase that part of their history. Um, they would also, I, I remember one story about um, a young woman who had been trafficked and she had a lot of insecurities about her teeth, that they were crooked and um, they the police officers wanted to help her gain her some self-confidence. So they, they uh, partnered up with a local dentist who did pro bono work to fix her teeth, to make her feel better about herself, to sort of help her on her path to healing. But this is all stuff police officers were doing on their own time, like they were taking phone calls from these these girls and women at like two in the morning. Sometimes uh, they would get a call from somebody saying, what color should I dye my hair or what kind of chair should I, I get for my apartment? Because they had for so long been in relationships with these traffickers who wouldn't let them make any decisions, who, who wouldn't even let them go and buy tampons without getting permission. Like they they weren't allowed to make any decisions. So that's how it was when I started reporting on this. I did a lot of stories about the need for victim services specifically geared towards victims of human trafficking. And gradually over the years, more uh, nonprofit organizations started popping up that were gearing their services specifically towards survivors of human trafficking. So there's a lot that I could point to now in Canada. And and I could say even like right before the the COVID-19 pandemic struck back in March, our provincial government had pledged uh, something like $200 million to help victims and survivors of human trafficking. So it's definitely on the radar now. I know some of that money got cut, I recently learned, due to the COVID-19 expenses, unfortunately. But there are still a lot of organizations working to help. So, for example, there's one organization in Toronto called Covenant House Toronto. They have uh, traditionally been known for supporting uh, local homeless youth, and they still do a lot of work with homeless youth, but also part of their mandate now is helping survivors of sex trafficking. So, I mean, the two sort of go hand in hand in a lot of cases. Um, I talked to somebody who's worked there for decades recently, and she, uh, she was telling me stories from the 1980s of girls and young women she was coming across who were being trafficked, although we weren't calling it human trafficking back then, And so they're continuing to sort of do that awesome work to support survivors and also to educate the public. So the the work that's being done now is leaps and bounds beyond what was happening a decade, two decades, three decades ago. Um, But I should also say that um, I did a story once about cases that were happening back in the 90s, like not in the 90s. I didn't do the story, but a couple decades later, I, I pointed to some cases from the 90s where there were all of these cases of human trafficking that were coming to light. Again, before we called it human trafficking, it was pimping cases, a case of, many cases of violent pimps in the Toronto area. And it really became a part of the public conversation. There was a lot of like task forces that were formed. There was public money thrown at it. Um, but then eventually, the public money sort of dried up. The task forces, their resources went into other units. There was a new flavors of the mount that came along and suddenly everybody forgot about this pimping problem that we had in Canada, just as you guys have in the United States. And then lo and behold, you know, two decades later, there I was at the Toronto Sun writing about domestic sex trafficking cases as if it was something new, when really it's been happening for more than a century in exactly the same way. So while well, I'm so happy that there are more resources now for survivors, both in Canada and the United States. More resources for police to prosecute these pimps and traffickers. Um, I'm also, you know, scared that what's going to happen when if, if this is a flavor of the month, and if a new flavor of the month comes along, are we going to forget about these girls and women again? I really hope not, and that's why I I think the education piece in this is so important, so that we can educate ourselves as adults and then educate our children in age in uh, age-appropriate ways so that they don't fall victim. And hopefully we can break this cycle that is happening over and over and over again of these men, these parasitic men, preying on these vulnerable girls and women and basically destroying their lives. Like, I I don't want to be talking about this in 20 years from now as if it's something new because it's not new now. It wasn't new 10 years ago, and it wasn't new a hundred years ago. It's been going on forever. And um, I think the more people we can educate about it, the the better chance we'll have of of not treating this as a new issue in two decades from now.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, one of my final questions, um, just out of curiosity, you have been so public about this fight in Canada and this awareness. Have you ever been... Approached directly or indirectly by a uh, trafficker?
1: No, my mom's always worried about that though. <laughs> <laughs> I, can um, imagine. I, I have sat in a lot of courtrooms behind these guys and uh, they're very arrogant. I've been stared down by a lot of them, um, but I've never, I've never been approached by them personally. I know um, I was recently speaking with a victim support worker from one case where there was a particularly violent trafficker involved and she was like quite fearful of him. And she was quite fearful that he would end up, you know, living in a halfway house in her neighborhood. I have never feared for my own safety or been approached by any of these guys. And maybe I'm naive. I don't know. But, um, I always sort of felt like, uh, it would be dumb for any of them to come after me. I guess that that would be really drawing a lot of heat, and these guys don't like to draw a lot of heat. They like to fly under the radar. So,
0: yeah, that'd no. be that'd for be a short, risk.
1: That's a long answer.
0: Yeah, that'd be a risk. Yeah, I can imagine for them, um, that'd be a, a risk to their livelihood. So, before we wrap this up, tell me or tell my audience and and me tell me about your book, something about your book and the message.
1: So my book is called All the Bumpy Pebbles, and you can find it in all of the usual e-book places, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, Amazon, and you can find it uh, on Amazon in the paperback version. And this is basically a fiction based on fact uh, crash course in human trafficking on what domestic sex trafficking looks like. So the protagonist uh, is named Roxanne. And she is sort of a composite of a lot of the young women and girls that I reported on uh, during my years as a journalist. Um, she encounters different people that are also composites of stories that I wrote as, as a reporter. So as you're reading this book, um, I should first say, if you want to read a book that's going to make you comfortable, don't read this book. So you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to step out of that comfort zone, Raid right out of that comfort zone, Uh, But I think that's very important. And I think it's important for all of us to step out of our comfort zone and understand what sex trafficking looks like. This book will show you that. Like I said, it's like a crash course. Um, And when you're reading this and you're thinking, oh, my God, that couldn't have actually happened. um, It did happen. It probably happened to somebody that I interviewed directly or or somebody that um, was interacting with a police officer who then told me the story or a victim service provider. Um, I wanted to make this book as accurate a reflection as possible of how this works, how these pimps and traffickers operate um, with hopes that, you know, somebody can educate their child or their student or, you know, the kid on the street about how this stuff works. I basically say that I wrote it for any adult with a child in their life, whether you raise them, teach them, police them, lawyer them, judge them shelter them or pass them on the street. If you've got kids in your life that you care about, read my book, learn about sex trafficking and make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else.
0: Great. Great. And I don't think, um, my audience worries about being in a comfort zone because two, four, seven real talk is all about stepping outside of your comfort zone. That's all the episodes we do. Real talk, real stories about real people and real effects in their lives. So, um, I want to say thank you, first of all, for what you've done. But before I before I wrap this up, too, tell us a bit about your next venture.
1: So uh, I left journalism late last year um, to launch a public relations firm aimed at supporting victims and survivors of crime, of traumatic events. It's called Pickup Communications. So basically, I work with survivors, often survivors of homicide. Helping them deal with the media, help them navigate the media, help them with what their rights are. I help them craft statements. I help them garner attention on their loved ones unsolved homicides uh, in consultation with police. So that is sort of my my day job. It's a work in progress still. Um, I also have a research project on the go where I'm examining the impact of the media on victims and survivors of traumatic events. I'm basically on a mission to. Change the system by which victims and survivors interact with and are impacted by the media because I saw a lot of problems when I, during my fifteen years as a crime reporter, and I want to rectify those problems and do do right by all those those among us who are suffering so much.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic, and I should let my audience know that you will be back as a guest in this show to go deeper into you know that aspect of, of uh, your currently or your, that's your current venture. And to educate us and to share some stories with us, so thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for uh, the education you gave us tonight. Thank you, especially for um, enlightening us and giving us a comparison to the United States of you know and, and sort of letting my audience know that you know uh, on a wider range that this occurs beyond the borders of the United States and the similarities and differences. I'm sure all the the appearance in in Toronto and 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 across your Canada are very appreciative of what you're doing, and, you know, especially those who are still looking for their children and believe them to be a fallen victim to human trafficking. So I thank you so much for your message on this, on this episode, and I sure look forward to having you return uh, to tell us more about your next venture. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.
1: Julian, thanks so much for having me, and thanks so much for shining a spotlight on this important issue. Again and again, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. You're so welcome. I want to say a very special thank you to Tamara Cherry for coming on this show and for sharing her knowledge and wisdom on this very important issue. I also want to thank my audience and my listeners for your continued support, as I always do, and it's very much appreciated by 247 Real Talk. I want to remind you that you can catch all of our episodes on your favorite podcast app, And you can also do the same via the website at www.247realtalk.net. If you'd like to send me a message or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can send me an email at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. You can also find a Facebook page that shares the episodes with you. Until the next time,